From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, corneal biomechanics and a new MIGS device. There is no sutures, so nothing to, to cut. There, 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 is no, um, there is no no leaks, so you don't have to repair that. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but EFCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you, speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the ESCRS annual meeting in Barcelona. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from BJ Dupes on cross-linked corneal biomechanics and from Ingeborg Stalmans on a new collagen gel MIGS device. I'm here with BJ Dupes. BJ, you gave a, a, a wonderful talk, really, really, really interesting subject on what actually takes place structurally, biomechanically, with the cornea when we cross-link. Let me kind of get you to walk me through um, the, the, the different measurement avenues uh, about which you spoke. Sure. Thanks, Josh. A pleasure to be here. Um, so the, the talk focused on what we know and what we don't know about uh, the changes in the cornea with collagen cross-linking and how, how that impacts the cornea's shape after the treatment. So uh, we covered a variety of different measurement techniques, including some that are available today and some that we're still working on as a field, um, including the ocular response analyzer, the Corviz. These are air puff uh, techniques that bounce the cornea and assess its response. And it's been difficult to measure the effects of crosslinking with the air puff devices uh, because the metrics that are used aren't particularly sensitive to the changes. And that's confused some people. They, some have concluded that maybe there's no stiffening going on. Um, but what we've seen with, with uh, some secondary analyses of those types of data, there's evidence of a stiffer cornea in those waveforms, but it's, it's buried there and you have to extract that with, with additional techniques. Um, and then there's some emerging techniques that do uh, more spatial maps of properties. So OCT approaches, which is one that we're working on, uh, that how can, how can that judge stiffness? It's a great question. It's, uh, you know, we think of OCT as a static imaging technology, but you can actually measure dynamically, and one approach that we're using is to perturb the cornea while we're imaging it. So we can use a contact lens to push it. We can use an acoustic stimulation to vibrate the cornea and infer its stiffness from those responses captured from OCT displacements. And you're looking at, 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 at uh, fate phase change with the, with the relative images over yes. time? I mean, yes. is that the way that you do yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's the idea. In fact, we use a Doppler approach where we're, we're tracking the speed of the acoustic wave in the cornea, but using OCT as the device to track it. Um, 
and you're actually capturing the motion of the cornea as it moves. And if you know how far and how much the cornea is moving piece by piece, you know how hard you've pushed, you can infer the stiffness from that force and displacement data. Oh, that's really, really neat stuff. What, what are some of the, some of the other ways that, that, that corneal stiffness is, is being measured? So a very exciting way that's a non-contact approach is uh, Briune microscopy, which uh, uh, we really have to geek out to get into the fundamentals of that. But, but essentially, you're, you're looking at how, how light uh, is shifted within a cornea. It's shifted as a function of its stiffness. And so it can be used to, to, to get a spatial map of corneal stiffness without even having to physically perturb the cornea. So very exciting technology that's, I think, under commercial development right now. And then, I mean, look, there, there, there's, um, it, it's one thing to, to collect this, this data, but it's just a pile of, of, of data. I mean, how do you turn the information into, into knowledge here? So yeah, how do we use a pile of data like that? Um, one of the approaches that we're very, very interested in in, in, in Cleveland um, is uh, computational modeling, where we can actually bring that information into a structural model of a particular eye. And our vision for the future is that we would have a tomogram from the patient's eye, we would have patient-specific biomechanical measurements for that eye, we put those together into a structural simulation, and then you, you actually simulate a procedure that you want to perform. And you can look at the response in a virtual domain without ever touching the patient and start to assess whether or not you want to do that approach or change it. That sounds really cool. So the, 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 the software that, that you're using, it's, it's commercial software to look at, at stresses in materials or? Correct, right. So there's, there's some core commercial software that's used to actually run those structural analyses. And then on the front end, we're developing our own interface to, uh, to make that process more automatic and more usable for a clinician someday. So in, in, the, in the future, right. at the rate that you're working sometime next week, um, <laughs> when, when, when I want to, to use something like this, what might the clinical setting be and, and you know, what am I going, how am I going to get the data into the system and then what's the system going to tell me? I mean, how, how am I yeah. going to use this? Yeah, so one, one scenario would be, it would depend on what procedure you're thinking about doing or even if you're trying to decide what procedure to do. So let's say you have a, a candidate you're screening for refractive surgery. They have suspicious topography. You're considering, you know, maybe not next week, but in the near future, should I consider cross-linking or should I consider PRK with cross-linking? What combination makes sense? Essentially, you'd upload your tomographic maps of the patient into a web interface, specify what kind of treatment you're looking to get, and the process would be to actually do some iterative solutions to calculate the best way to get to that outcome with a variety of different options. And then it reports back to you a, a panel of options you could consider as sort of a surgical guidance tool. Yeah, this is really, really, really cool stuff. I'm really looking forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to try, trying it out. You know, we, we all say, you know, measure twice, cut once, but you know, it, 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 it's, um, it, it, it's it's getting the measurements to a model that represents what can potentially happen physically. That's that's the that's the real goal, and it's laudable, and it it's really cool stuff. BJ, I'm really happy that that, that that you brought this to us, and of course, they've been so generous with your time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Josh. I'm here with Ingeborg Stalmans. Ingeborg. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the context of uh, my own practice with uh, MIGS. I think it's, it's really, first of all, it's really fun. 
but it, I, I, it's 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 a benefit to to the patients. But I know that the devices that that I'm using are really first generation. Now, gave a wonderful talk uh, on a device that's not one that I'm using currently. Let me get you to sort of flesh things out here. Okay. Um, so I agree with you that um, it's a great development that new glaucoma surgery implants are being developed because, of course, we know that trabeculectomy, the classical glaucoma surgery, is effective but has certain risks. So um, I'm very happy that several companies are doing efforts to develop devices that are safer. Of course, a big challenge is to maintain efficacy. And I think that uh, Aquasis has done a great job in developing the Xen gel stand implant because it actually, they call it a hybrid system, which means that the ideas that they um, make glaucoma surgery um, more uh, safer, but at the same time maintain efficacy by targeting the subconjunctival space, which is quite unique for uh, a MIG because usually they target either Schlem's canal or uh, the supracoroidal space. Now, um, as said, I have um, experience with this device. Uh, I've implanted about 160 now. And I must say that the experience has been extremely positive. Before we, we discuss what the procedure's like and technically what it's like putting it in, describe what the device looks like. Okay. Yeah, so the, the device is made of cross-linked porcine collagen. Um, it is six millimeters long, um, slightly yellowish, and has an inner diameter of 45 microns. So it's tiny, basically, and it's preloaded in an uh, inserter, an injector. And talk me through a typical procedure. Okay. So the way it is done is uh, first a, a subconjunctival injection of mitomycin, low dose is given. And then um, we, we mark on the conjunctiva where we want the implant uh, to come at three millimeters, supranasally. Then we make an incision, uh, clear cornea at one millimeter of the limbus, um, infratemporally, and a side port at 60 degrees from that, um, infranasally. Then we inject viscoelastic in the uh, anterior chamber, we fill it completely. And then you basically go in with uh, the injector, go through um, the, the angle, the trabeculum, and come out of the sclera three millimeters further, and then inject the device, pull back, flush out the viscoelastic, and you're done. So um, you're, you're uh, going in with, with the trocar, it's not the, yeah. that you're... So it's a hollow needle, yeah. you go through. And then the, the injector, it's interesting, it's when you do the injection movement, the first half of the movement, movement is pushing the device forward so it comes out. And the second movement is the needle pulls back. So then you're out. And the procedure takes probably less time than me explaining this. And, and what, what was, how, what's the learning curve like? You know, what, what, how technically challenging were your first few cases? Okay, very good question. And I was concerned about that. Because, um, well, to just illustrate that, Aquasis has asked me to plan five cases for my first training day. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'll just plan two and we'll see how it goes. So I planned two and like um, one hour later we were done. And, and I was completely satisfied and somewhat euphoric because this is very straightforward. 
and the learning curve is very steep. So I did two training patients and then a couple of weeks later another two and they said off you go off you go and went fine and what 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 have you seen in, just with your own patients in terms of the IOP um, right after surgery in terms of, of spikes and then later on as, as the patients have healed um, spices spikes is not the issue um, in fact what you see um, regularly is asymptomatic hypotony. I get those um, regularly, but it doesn't concern me because it's asymptomatic. Um, no shallow ACs, no choroidals, no folds. So, um, of course, there is the odd exceptions where there is uh, some shallowing of the AC, but basically you can wait until it, it recovers and one week later they're fine. So, um, you don't get these aggressive hypotonies that you see after recolectomy um, that really need management and refills and blah blah. These are extremely rare with Exen, which makes the post-op care fun as well. Because as you know, when you do trabecolectomy, you basically have to marry the patient yeah. for a month or so uh, to manage the blab and get it right. And if you don't do, th do so well, it scars. It's not the case with Exen. There is no sutures, so nothing to, to cut. Um, the, the, there is, um, there is no, no leaks, so you don't have to repair that. The hypotonies are very rarely symptomatic, so no, it's, it's fun, as you said. When we think of MIGS and where MIGS fits in, we're typically thinking of a very modest benefit where we're replacing one, maybe two drops, we're enhancing um, control in patients where compliance may not be, be good. But we typically say that the result that we get is not comparable to the result that you would get from, from a trap. Is, is that not the case here? Exactly. I think that is precisely where the Xen uh, differentiates itself from the other MIGs. Because, as you stated very nicely, we should not over-expect things from, from MIGs. Indeed, they can help us to maybe reduce the number of medications, maybe go one, maximum two millimeters lower, but that's it. Uh, whereas this one, um, I honestly, is, is different because instead of the high teams you can expect from other MIGs, with this one, you really get to the low teams. Um, maybe slightly higher than with a Trabi because Trabi brings you maybe to 10 to 12, whereas this one maybe 12 to 14 which is still great in the vast majority of our glaucoma patients. So that really makes a difference. And I, and I think that has to do with uh, the fact that you target the subconjunctival space because the resistance is just lower. Yes, it can be there. much lower, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what makes a difference. Ingeborg, this is really, really cool mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I think this, to me, um, until now, this is the only mix that really... I use as an alternative to a trabeculectomy. Um, as you said, the other MIGs are useful to, to give you some additional IOP loading or, or reduce the number of medications. Maybe since you, when you're doing a FACO anyway, you might as well plug it in and right. have some advantage. That's the idea. Here it's different. In a patient that really needs surgery, filtering surgery, you have the option to make the filtering surgery safer, less invasive, you have a high chance to get the pressures low enough. And if it's not sufficient, 
you might still decide to do a trabeculectomy afterwards, so you don't lose any options. Because you haven't it's compromised conjunctiva. Exactly. Yeah. It is, it is supranasal. You haven't opened up the conjunctiva. Okay, there is an implant. Sometimes it scars, but the scar is is much milder than after a trabeculectomy, and you don't have a scleral flap and everything. So you have plenty of space that still has like virgin conjunctiva you can use for a trabeculectomy if needed yeah. afterwards. Really, really neat. Look, I want to thank you very much for bringing this, this to us and, and for being so very generous with your time with us today. Thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. William B.J. Dupes comes to us from the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Ingeborg Stalmans is professor of ophthalmology at the University Hospitals Leuven in Leuven, Belgium. Ask questions of Dr. Dupes, Dr. Ingeborg, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.